Let's turn in uh, our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 15. I'm calling this message, What Does Your Mouth Reveal? And I'm not asking for any answers right away. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you might instruct us in what to say, because we are ambassadors of heaven. And as your spokespeople and representatives, we want to represent you in a way that is glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. When you go to a doctor, sometimes he'll say, stick out your tongue, because your tongue can reveal what's going on in the rest of your body. The surface of the tongue indicates if there's any problems in the alimentary canal. Jesus said the same thing in a spiritual sense. He said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is, what is inside will be revealed by what is outside. By the words that you speak, your words and my words are somewhat of a gauge that give an accurate representation of what's going on inside of our minds and our hearts. An angry person who is filled with ill will toward another eventually will express himself in harsh words. A person who has lustful thoughts eventually will express those thoughts in crude remarks. A person who is genuinely loving seeking to get a person to a level of walking with the Lord or seeking to uh, help that person, eventually they'll express that in their speech. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In the book of Job, a guy is suffering, that is Job. He's surrounded by people who take pot shots at him, basically, and say, well, you're not spiritual, well, you're not holy, well, you've got sin in your life, and all of these philosophies, until... Finally, one of Job's friends, named Elihu, who has been silent all of this time, begins to speak. And this is what he says. It reveals this truth. I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It's ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I might find relief. I must open my lips and answer. But what is the answer? Whatever it is reveals the heart. In com- computer technology, uh, they're often fond of saying garbage in, garbage out. That is, the quality of the data uh, or the quality of the result is determined upon the quality of the data that you have in the computer. And so it is in life, garbage in, garbage out. Whatever is in our hearts, whatever we allow to fill our minds and our hearts with, eventually will make its way out through the mouth. Somebody once said, if a man has Limburger cheese on his upper lip, he thinks the whole world smells. (laughs) Usually a person who's always looking and saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, this is wrong, wickedness, is usually a person who has got that in his own life. I have found that the person who gripes the most is often the most smelliest inside. From the abundance of the heart. Now last week we sort of started off with this whole idea of the power of the tongue, the power of human speech. And the banner scripture we used was Proverbs 18.21 that says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. We talked about the tremendous power that words have. 
Think of the words of a judge, how powerful they are. With one short sentence, he can set a person free. He can commit a prisoner to 20 years in jail. He can call for a death sentence. Think of the power of a doctor's words. That sentence the doctor speaks to you in his office can either cause you to go, or it can cause your stomach to knot up as he tells you the results of your test. Today we want to look at the power of the speech for good, for life. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. We want to talk about good ways to put your mouth to good use, to bring life rather than destroy to develop a person. And as we do, keep in mind that I think Jesus embodies all of these traits. It says in the New Testament that everyone who knew him spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. So we're going to look at four ways this morning that our speech can bless others. The first is enlightenment, and then endearment, then enforcement, then finally encouragement. I was uh, reading about a certain kind of uh, bird that lives in the Taurus Mountains of southern Turkey. It's a crane. And uh, it, cranes, this type, tend to cackle when they fly. And that's not good because eagles, their predatory enemy, hears the cackle and finds where they are and their lunch. And it seems that some of the wiser cranes have learned to find rocks the size of their mouth and put the rocks in their mouth when they fly to prevent themselves from letting out a cackle. They've learned that their mouth can be their survival or their doom. And as I read that, I thought of what Paul said. In the book of Colossians, telling us about our speech, he said, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Well, first of all, let's look at enlightenment. One way to put your mouth to good use is to enlighten people with it. And what I mean by that is teaching them truth or giving them wise counsel. The book of Proverbs has so much to say about counseling others with wise speech. In fact, it says in the multitude of counselors there is safety. But look over in chapter 15 at verse 4, the beginning. It says, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. That speaks of fruitfulness. Down in verse 7, the lips of the wise disperse knowledge. Look over in chapter 16. In verse 20, He who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. The wise in heart will be called prudent, and sweetness of the lips increase learning. You know, there's all sorts of subjects you can learn. Go to any bookstore, and if you're like me, you'll be overwhelmed at all of the books that are written about virtually every subject. You could never exhaust them in a lifetime. But of all of the subjects that you could learn, that you could become an expert at, the most important is the knowledge of spiritual truth, because that has eternal consequences, right? Well, if you're wise, you'll be a person who disperses and dispenses spiritual knowledge through instruction, through wise counsel. Now, in the Bible, there are several levels at which this instruction or enlightenment is to take place. Let's just go through them. 
First of all, spiritual leaders, pastors like myself, have the calling of God to give spiritual instruction to the flock. Uh, Paul said that a pastor has to be able to teach, or as one translation says, skilled in teaching, bringing spiritual enlightenment, teaching the Word of God to the flock. In fact, this is, I believe, his main ministry, is teaching the Word of God. Paul said to Timothy, he spoke of those in 1 Timothy who labor in the Word and in doctrine. They labor in the Word and doctrine. That's how I see myself. Basically, the role of a pastor, as I see it, is like a spiritual housewife who slaves over a hot stove all day to give her family a good meal. I think that my first and highest calling is to, in a sense, slave over a spiritual stove to study words, to study how they apply, and to give a balanced meal when I stand in front of you. And I think one of the secrets of the early church is they always kept this priority even when the going got tough and there was pressure to conform to meeting other needs. In Acts chapter 6, it's sort of the classic scripture, there's a, a spat that goes on, an argument. It seems that one group of widows felt neglected by the church. And they felt neglected by the leadership of the church. And so they complained. And they came to the apostles. And you know what the apostles said? They said, we're not going to leave the word of God and serve tables. Now that was not an arrogant retort. He's not saying, we're too good, we're too holy, we're too spiritual to help you out. No, he said, we have a high and holy calling of God. And that is to teach you spiritual truth. And we're not going to leave that first and high calling. Rather... You find seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we will appoint them over this business. We'll release the ministry to them. But as for ourselves, we must continually give ourselves to prayer and to the study of the Word of God. Why? Because, well, I had a professor who put it to me this way. If you stand in front of 100 people and you speak for one hour, If you go up there unprepared or just flow at the mouth, you've wasted a hundred hours of God's time. I will never forget that. Labor in the Word and doctrine. Now, I think a lot of churches have left the Word of God to serve tables. I feel very strongly about this, and I'm very passionate about it. Many churches who were once known for emphasizing truth and teaching the Word, have sort of left that behind, and they've become more relevant, more user-friendly. Let's just make people feel good when they come. Let's not really talk about truth. Let's not be harsh about it. Let's not lift up the banner of Jesus Christ only for salvation. Let's soft-pedal the truth a little bit. Let's just make people feel good. Rather than enlightenment, it would be entertainment. The idea in many places, and it's become a trend, by the way, is to entertain. Well, let's not, you know, talk about doctrine. Let's not have truth divide us. Let's just get everybody together. Let's play bingo. Let's serve good meals to them and uh, nice soft drinks to them and uh, play the right kind of music and make them feel happy and cool. And I think that's a tragedy. A young man went to Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a, a great uh, preacher from Philadelphia years ago. 
He was known as a Bible teacher, and many people came to hear him because he did one thing. He taught the Bible. It's kind of like we do chicken right. He just did Bible right. And people came to listen to him. And a young man came up to him and said, I would give the world if I could teach the Bible like you. And he looked at him in the eye and he said, Good, young man, because that's exactly what it will cost you. Everything. You give your life to it. Because we need to pass on truth to other generations. So, enlightenment starts with the leadership of the church. But the Bible also talks about the need to have instruction come in other ways. For instance, parents need to instruct or enlighten their children. We've already given a whole message on this in the book of Proverbs, but let's be reminded of what God told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 6. He gave them the law of Moses and He said, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, parents, have the Word of God in your heart, and then get it out of your heart, and get it into the ears of your children. Teach it to them. The Hebrew word teaches to repeat often to them. It is the parents' responsibility, not the churches, not the Christian schools, to train children. Why? Because 1% of a child's time is spent under the influence of Sunday school. That's not much. 7% of a child's time is spent under the influence of public school. And 92% of a child's time is spent under the influence of parents. The first place, then, spiritual enlightenment ought to take place is in the home. Because that's where you learn values. That's where you learn what's important. Do the parents establish family devotion time? Do they say, this is important, the Bible is important, prayer is important. Look at our lives, this is what we do. That's where a child learns what is important. We may say something is important, but then parents, do we live it? Do our children grow up thinking, yeah, I know it's important, money, success, uh, pleasure, Or do they grow up saying relationships are important? The Word of God is important? Prayer is important? So spiritual enlightenment, instruction from parents to children. I was reading about Susanna Wesley. And uh, she would pray an hour a week for her kids. She had 17 of them. That doesn't mean she spent 17 hours a week. It means she spent an hour, uh, excuse me, an hour a day praying for her children. And she would just work through the list and pray for each one individually for an hour, 17 kids. But then she would take an hour a week and give each one at different times spiritual instruction in the Word of God. That's quite a commitment, I realize. But it's no wonder that because of that, probably, two of her sons, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, blessed all of England and most of America. She wrote down some of her precepts of parenting. She said, number one, subdue self-will in a child and thus work together with God to save his soul. Number two, teach him to pray as soon as he can speak. Three, give him nothing he cries for and only what is good for him if he asks for it politely. Well, that would be a change in our culture, wouldn't it? Number four, to prevent lying, punish no fault which is freely confessed. But never allow a rebellious, sinful act to go unnoticed. Five, commend and reward good behavior 
And number six, strictly observe all promises that you have made to your child. Another level at which instruction, enlightenment ought to take place is from men to men within the church. And that scripture is found in 2 Timothy. Paul said, Timothy, the things that I've taught you, I want you to teach others. He says, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I've received great instruction from different pulpits in my life. But some of the greatest instruction has been one-on-one, the example, the mentoring of other people, watching their lives, asking personal questions, being disciple. Not necessarily in a formal, once a week, go over this material, but just that relationship of discipleship. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He took 12 guys, not PhDs, not seminary graduates, fishermen, and he gave them the precepts of God. And then he said, that's which I have received from my father, I've given to you. Now I want you to give them away, give them to other people, train others. And so men, we are a link in the chain that goes all the way back to Jesus Christ who taught those 12 men, the disciples. You don't have to be a pastor to do this. You don't have to be a reverend to do this or a PhD to do this. You just have to be obedient to do this. Then the Bible also talks about women teaching women, especially the older women instructing the younger women. In Titus 2, it says older women should be teachers of good things. You say, well, what are those good things? I'm glad you asked. Admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, to be chaste, to be homemakers, to be good and obedient to their own husbands. The experience of godly women who have walked the path and have the experience, it makes them suited to pass on that truth to other generations. A word to those of you who are seasoned saints. I'm not calling you silver saints. Notice that. Seasoned saints. It doesn't matter what color your hair is. Those who are older in the faith. One of the best things you can do to put your mouth to good use is to find a younger saint to put your arms, so to speak, around that person and say, I'm going to work with you. I'm going to disciple you. I would love to just spend some time and teach you personally the ways of God. As Paul the Apostle said, follow me as I follow the Lord. This is so important, and I want to emphasize that because though we have uh, lots of Christian books out and uh, there's Christian radio today and Christian television and Christians on the Internet and there's all these venues for learning it seems to have little impact in the way people really live. I think people hear great messages and have great material and hear good counselors, but they don't change. And one of the best ways to change is personal discipleship because in that way you hold someone accountable. Then the Bible also talks about the instruction that we're all to give to the world, to unbelievers. Jesus put it this way, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So as Christians, we all have the responsibility to toss the net out. Over in Proverbs 14, verse 25, it says, A true witness delivers souls. See, you're still turning there. We're already done with that scripture. (laughs) A true witness delivers souls. That's one way to put the mouth to to good use is to throw the net out and be a witness and to deliver souls from death. 
There was, I was reading, a pastor, a Russian pastor, who was arrested by the Soviet government some years ago. They were interrogating him. The Soviet secret police put him in a room and said, How many preachers do you have in your church? The man said, I have 500. The eyes were real big. He said, you have 500 preachers in your church? How many people attend your church? How many congregants do you have? He said, 500. I have made sure that each one who attends and is a congregant is a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mouth reveals the heart. Enlightenment is the first way you can put your mouth to good use. Giving information that is spiritual to others in counsel, in instruction, in evangelism. Secondly, endearment is another way. Look at Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath. A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Look down at verse 18. Same chapter. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. A good way to put your mouse... I keep saying mouse to good youth. You have a little mouse, don't you, in your pocket? To use your mouth correctly, which I'm not doing today, is to, instead of causing a blow-up in a relationship when there's a contention, to diffuse it by the right kind of words. This is where taming the tongue comes in. Now, when you're verbally attacked, when somebody says a cut to you, a spouse, a friend, a boss, a person on the street that cut you off, what is your inclination? When somebody shares something harsh with you, yells at you, cusses you out, what's your inclination? Now, don't say, to bless. (laughs) Now, that would be your obedient response. But that's not your inclination. Because you're human and so am I. When someone says something that is harsh and stirs up anger, rather than a soft answer, your normal inclination is to study and find the button. You know what I mean by that? Everybody has a button that you can push. And if you find that button and push it hard enough, they'll just wither. So it's like, I'm going to rip into this person right now and reduce him to ashes. That is your inclination. There was a British playwright by the name of George Bernard Shaw. A British playwright who knew Winston Churchill. And uh, he sent to Winston Churchill two tickets to the opening night performance that he had just written. And he uh, accompanied a little note with that that said, uh, Bring a friend if you have one. Well, Winston Churchill was also very fond of terse replies. And he said, I'll come on the second night if there is one. (laughs) You see, we laugh at that because we like it. You think, I'm going to remember that. Write that down. That's a good chop. Because that's our natural inclination. Let's see if this is your experience. Turn back to Psalms for just a moment. 39. Here's David's experience. See if this is your own. Psalm 39, he begins, I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. 
I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle. That wouldn't be a bad idea. While the wicked are before me, I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. Have you ever been in that situation? You suppress your anger. I'm not going to say anything. I'm in control. Deep breath. They start saying things, and you go, oh, man. You start getting hot inside. Adrenaline is coursing through your body. Your heartbeat gets higher. Your blood pressure shoots up. Your hands get sweaty. Then you just explode, and you regret it. Then I spoke with my tongue. Oh, I kept saying, I'm going to put a muzzle on my mouth. But it didn't work. And then when you explode, you regret it. As it's been said, those who fly into a rage usually make a bad landing. David had that experience. Now, instead of that, we could put our mouth to good use by bringing reconciliation rather than sharing words that will divide people. I'll guarantee you, husbands, wives, you want to keep the argument going? Just speak a little louder when they say something to you. Just a little louder, a little harsher. Another cut. Get that word in. It'll keep going. You'll have that fire burn out of control. You want to stop it? How about saying, I'm sorry. Or, I love you. Man, that deflates the person. It's like they're going, hey, hey, hey. What'd you say? (laughs) You're what? You're sorry? You weren't supposed to say that. We were having a good fight. (laughs) But it will quell the anger. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said, God has given to us the ministry, this is a ministry, of reconciliation. The word reconciliation, katalasso, to make that which is hostile into a friendly situation. Or to bring people together. According to studies done by Kenyon College, tests have been shown that when someone is shouted at, he can't help but shout back. The one who did this study, Les Giblin, says, quote, You can use this scientific knowledge to keep another person from becoming angry. Here's how. Control the other person's tone of voice by your own voice. For studies have shown that if you keep your voice soft, you won't become angry. Psychology is finally accepted as scientific, the old biblical injunction, a soft answer turns away wrath. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So if you want God on your side, be someone who brings reconciliation, diffuse a situation. A third way that your tongue can be used for good and it reveals your heart, it's not only enlightenment, it's not only endearment, the third would be enforcement. Now, as I share these today, you may start thinking, well, some of these sound contradictory. They are not, because they all apply in different situations. Enforcement is one. Look over to Proverbs 17, verse 10. Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. You don't have to turn there, but let me read this to you from Proverbs 20. I'm not going to even tell you what verse. Blows that hurt, blows that hurt, cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. 
You know what the idea is? A loving rebuke by a godly tongue will do a lot to get a person on the right track. That's called enforcement. That's called, I'm not going to let you get away with this. I love you too much. That's called loving confrontation. Paul said to the Galatians, If anyone is overtaken in any fault, you who are spiritual, restore that one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So when you have a genuine desire to restore, you couple that with the right timing, it can be a dynamic result. This is called calling a person on the carpet. It's a person who isn't living correctly. I'm not saying uh, you, you go around and be the gospel Gestapo and find every little thing that people do, but when somebody is openly living in a way that contradicts the Bible and yet they call themselves a Christian, you owe it to that person to say, Brother, what you're doing isn't right. And I'm being very vulnerable right now to say this, but I'm being very loving to say this as well. And if you do it in a loving way with the genuine desire to restore, it can be great. You know, a lot of times people ask, well, why is the church in America so unholy? They're not getting the right message. No, I don't think so. I think in many cases the church in America is getting all of the right teaching, all of the right doctrine, all of the right message. We're just not holding them accountable for it. What we are basically saying to them is, as long as you believe what it says on the sheet of paper, live any way you want to. And we won't care. We'll let you do it and we'll pat you on the back and go, it's okay, brother. We love you anyway. And that is not love. Paul said, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Now, come on. Yeah, we're Christians. But there's sometimes we get unruly, out of rank, out of order. And I contend it is not loving to just turn your head and say, oh, well, who cares? The guy's flagrantly sinning. It doesn't really matter. It's difficult and it's painful at times to do this, but it's necessary. You say, I don't know if that's very loving. Well, let me ask you this. Did Jesus love people? Answer can only be yes. In fact, He's incarnate love. And Jesus told us this in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And let it be, He said, between you and him alone. So, Don't go to other people first. Hey, did you hear about him? Go to him alone and tell him his fault. Then Jesus said, if he won't listen to you when you confront him with that sin, bring two or three witnesses with you. And if they won't hear the witnesses, tell it to the church. And if they won't hear the church, let him be a tax collector and like a heathen to you. Get him out of your midst. It was something Paul the Apostle and the other church leaders followed throughout their entire ministry. Now, when people hear that, they'll often say, Yeah, but Jesus said, Judge not, lest you be judged. So that's unloving, it's judging. Well, when Jesus said, Judge not, did he mean don't confront? Because if he did, he contradicted himself from Matthew 7 to Matthew 18. In one fell swoop, he certainly wasn't speaking about Matthew 18 process of confrontation when he said, Judge not, lest you be judged. He was speaking about hypocritical, self-righteous judgment that would consign a person to eternal judgment without any basis. But then there's that process of loving confrontation. And frankly, that's what Paul rebuked the entire church at Corinth for refusing to do, to confront. 
He said, you know, I've heard that you guys are tolerant of a person who comes to your fellowship who's living in incest. And you pride yourself on the fact, oh, we're so loving, we're so open, we're so tolerant. He says, you aren't loving at all because a little leaven will destroy the whole church. Get that person out if that person refuses to repent. He said, I can say that without even having coming to Corinth until that person turns. That's love. And to refuse to hold a person accountable is not love at all. So we can put our mouths to good use. And our mouths reveal our heart. Number one, by enlightenment. Number two, by endearment or reconciliation. Number three, by enforcement. And fourth and finally, by encouragement. By encouragement. Proverbs 15 is where we started. Let's look there again. Verse 23. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth. And a word spoken in due season, how good it is. That was written by someone who knew how good it is. A person with a broken heart would know that. There's a lot of people that have broken hearts. There's some people that don't need to be confronted. They're just always burdened because of something. And there's tragedy in their lives and they feel bent down. They need somebody to lift them up at just the right time, or as it says here, in due season. One of the most significant ministries in the church or in a family is the ministry of encouragement, expressing honest appreciation for another person. I love you. I appreciate you. Not empty flattery. That does no one any good. But sincere, honest appreciation. I found uh, an interesting regulation from the British Royal Navy that says, quote, No officer shall speak discouraging, discouragingly to another officer in the discharge of his duties. Well, that ought to be a regulation in the body of Christ. As someone pours out his or her heart to serve God with an open and a pure heart, no officer shall speak discouragingly to another officer in the discharge of his duties. Are you characterized by encouragement? When people think of what you say, do they think, oh, yeah, negative stuff? Or do they think of truth, instruction, encouragement, enforcement? Are you the kind to pat someone on the back? Or are you known as one who kicks them in the pants more than pats them on the back? So, yeah, but it's only a few vertebrae removed. Yeah, but you're miles ahead in results. Henry Drummond asked, how many prodigals are kept out of the kingdom of God by those unlovely characters who profess to be inside It's an indicting question. We all overhear Christians talk because we hang around enough of them. Here we are today. But in those little conversations, we sometimes hear Christians tearing down other Christians. That's tragic. And let me just say to those who are unbelievers here this morning or your brand new believers, we're sorry that you have to hear that. And please don't always take your cues from Christians as much as from Christ. It ought not to be that way. We ought to be able to say, follow me as I follow the Lord. You'll get a good example of what Jesus is like by watching my life. But we do sin. And we are forgiven. And one of the the biggest eye-openers to people when they come to faith is, man, these guys are believers? It ought not to be so. We're told in Hebrews 3, encourage one another. How often? Daily. Encourage one another daily. And more so as you see that day of God approaching. 
What we need more and more of in the church is people like Joseph. Do you remember him from the book of Acts, Joseph? You probably remember not his name given at birth, but the name that the early church gave him, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was given the name at birth, Joseph. But in the early church, they said, hey, buddy, we're going to change your name. We're going to call you son of encouragement. You've got such a big heart, and you're always helping people reach their full potential in Christ. That's the name we're going to give you. What a great name that is. What does your mouth reveal then? What kind of heart do you have? A heart full of instruction, encouragement, reconciliation and restoration? It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Which are you known for, death or life? I hope it's life. Are you the kind that loves to develop others or to destroy others? Are you the kind of a person that someone would feel comfortable sitting down and confessing their sins and their faults to, their burdens, their struggles? Or they say, no, I'm not going to talk to that person. I've got to say that I think some of you enjoy guilt more than grace. You're just so used to it, so comfortable there. It's so easy to say, well, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't think like that. You shouldn't feel that way. Yeah, but I do. Help me. I read a couple paragraphs that sum it up best. A person said, the neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. The bar is an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but it's accepting, it's an inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. And so many people seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. With all my heart, says this author, I believe that Christ wants his church to be unshockable, a fellowship where people can come and say, I'm beat, I'm sunk, I've had it. Alcoholics Anonymous has this quality. Our churches too often miss it. And before you say, yeah, yeah, man, they need to get their act together, realize something. You are the church. We're all part of it. And the finger pointing that way has three pointing back at us. We're part of the body of Christ. Let's not be the only outfit on earth that shoots its wounded. Let's use this God-given ability at given times the right way to give instruction, enlightenment, to give endearment to bring people together, to give enforcement and hold others accountable, and to encourage genuine encouragement when it's needed. Let's pray. Father, we know lots of people. We know lots of people that we could teach this message to today or tomorrow. We know people that we've been arguing with this week. We've been waiting for their retort that we can think up of a better one. We know people that we've failed to confront and lovingly restore. And we know lots of people that need encouragement. I pray that we might be known as Jesus was known. They marveled because of the gracious words which came from his mouth. In Jesus' name. Amen.